0: Again, to Prairie View Christian Church, it's very good to be worshiping with you here today. Now, last week, as we began Second Peter, Peter reminded his original audience and reminded us of who we are in Christ. He said that we have obtained a faith of equal standing with the apostles themselves and that like them, we are called to God's glory and God's excellence. And like those apostles. We are heirs to the great promises of God and this new identity we have is a gift of God's grace secured for us through Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross for our sins and ratified and announced through his victorious resurrection. But Peter didn't stop there. In this letter, he doesn't just remind us of who we are in Christ. He reminds us of what our lives ought to look like in Christ. He gave us that long list of qualities, starting with the word faith and then going on with words like virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection and love. And this is also important because Peter wants those believers reading his letter to be fruitful and effective disciples. He wants us to be faithful witnesses to the gospel. But Peter stressed these truths not just because they're important. He stressed them for a very specific reason as well. He stressed them because he's preparing to die. And before Peter goes, he wants to ensure that the generations of believers after him will know the truth of the gospel and carry it forward after he's gone. You could say this letter is Peter's swan song. These are the words that he wants the disciples to remember when they think of him. However, not all of Peter's final words in this letter are warm and positive and encouraging. There are also some very stark warnings that Peter wants these believers to heed. And we'll cover those words this morning. So open your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 16. As always, feel free to use one of the Bibles that we provide if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home with you if you don't own one. But before we read our passage, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Uh, Father, as we saw last week, there are believers worshiping in different places right now who might be a little bit more nervous than normal Uh, there are terrible things that can happen in this world to non-believers and believers alike there is evil in this world there is sin in this world there is pain and chaos in this world and so often more often than not you spare us from that you're kind to us you're gracious to us and you keep that away from us but sometimes you don't and so father i pray that we would trust And worship and serve and obey and love through the ups and the downs. When good times come and bad times come, when there are triumphs and when there are tragedies. Father, be with believers around the world this morning who are much more familiar with what we saw last week in Texas. There are believers who are much more used to the thought of violence on a Sunday morning service and persecution and and all kinds of chaos. Father, be with them. That we be with those believers in Texas as well. Be with them as they clean up the destruction that they've seen. Be with them as they grieve those who have been lost, as they attempt to heal those who have been injured, as they move on with life, even though it's really impossible to just move on from what they've experienced. But, Father, watch over those believers. And watch over us as we read your word this morning. Give us... Open hearts and open minds and open ears for what it is that you have to say. We love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your son who died for us. And we ask this all in his name. Amen. Let's begin by reading Second Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 16. Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty for when he received honor and glory from God, the father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter defends the truth of his words. He defends the truth of the gospel. He makes it clear that these things really did happen. But he doesn't just defend his message. He also defends himself as a messenger. He is a reputable teacher. He's a faithful witness of these events concerning Jesus. Now, the fact that Peter feels the need to defend himself and defend his message tells us something important about the context of this letter. The fact that Peter feels the need to defend himself tells us that there is opposition afoot. There are people questioning the truth of the gospel and people questioning Peter's credibility as a messenger. And even though Peter is an old man by now, he's not going to take this opposition lying down. And so he directly addresses those opponents and directly addresses their doubts. He starts with two main arguments. The first argument is that, number one, he's an eyewitness to all the things he's taught about Jesus. Peter was there. He followed Jesus from just about day one. He heard the teachings. He saw the healings. He witnessed the transfiguration where God the Father audibly endorsed Jesus as his son. Peter was in the garden when Jesus was arrested. He heard the rooster crow at Jesus's trial. He was there when they found the tomb empty. He watched Thomas touch Jesus's side in the upper room. He saw Jesus ascend and he heard the promise of Jesus' return. Peter's making it very clear that this gospel that he shared isn't just some cleverly devised myth. It's not some silly fairy tale. Peter didn't make any of this stuff up. He saw it all with his own eyes. That's argument number one. But then argument number two is pretty simple. Peter says, you know, don't just take my word for it. I was an eyewitness, but even if you don't believe me, look to the prophetic word of God. So Peter challenges them to look at the promises of God specifically in the Old Testament. It's full of inspired words previewing how God would one day redeem and reconcile sinners to himself. And Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of those promises. Think about Genesis chapter 3. Jesus is the offspring of Eve who would one day crush Satan's head. Deuteronomy 18, Jesus is another prophet like Moses who would speak the authoritative words of God. There's 2 Samuel 7, Jesus is the promised offspring of David who would sit on David's throne in eternity. There's Psalm chapter 2, Jesus is God's son, worthy of worship from all the nations. Isaiah 53, Jesus is the suffering servant by whose wounds We are healed. And Daniel 7. Jesus is the son of man who rides on the clouds of heaven. And there are other passages that you could look to as well. So Peter's first argument is, okay, you know what? I was an eyewitness. I saw all this stuff happen. I know it's true. I know it's real. But then argument number two is, well, you don't believe my account? Okay, but what about the inspired word of God, whose prophecies Jesus perfectly fulfills? Peter is so confident and so dedicated to this truth of this gospel that he's still announcing it and still defending it, even as he lays on his deathbed. Peter knows that if he wants to pass down the faith to those who will come after him, he has no choice but to address the opponents Attempting to lead those believers astray. And that's why he doesn't pull any punches in this passage, especially the verses we're about to read. He has fully announced and fully defended the message of Jesus Christ. And so now he sets his sights on those who would attempt to corrupt it. Those who would attempt to thwart it. And we start to see that in chapter two, verse one. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So we just rattled off that list of Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Well, when those prophecies were being written, the real prophets had to contend with false prophets. A real prophet is someone who is commissioned by God and given a message to share by God. A false prophet is someone who hasn't been called by God, and yet they say they have. And they have a message that they say is from God, but it actually isn't. Well, Peter says that back then they had false prophets, but today we have false teachers. And based on the way that Peter describes them, these false teachers are not innocently mistaken. They aren't accidentally teaching things That are wrong. That happens. Sometimes people accidentally say the wrong thing. Sometimes people misunderstand the Word of God and think they're presenting the truth, but they really are just making an honest mistake. No harm intended. But that's not the case of these false teachers. Peter says that they are secretive, they're cunning. It's the same word Jude uses when he says that those false teachers have crept in unnoticed. And their teaching isn't just some unintentional error. Their teaching is not a case of harmless disagreement. Peter describes their teaching as heresy. Now, heresy is a serious charge. It's a word that shouldn't be thrown around lightly. Literally, heresy means someone who chooses to set themselves apart. Someone who has voluntarily removed themselves from the truth of God and the family of God. One earns the title heretic when they persistently teach doctrine that is deceptive, divisive, and destructive to the salvation of believers. Heresy is the kind of teaching that directly contradicts The core truths of God. As Peter said in verse one. These false teachers even have the audacity to deny the master who bought them. They are explicitly denying Jesus. And Peter makes it clear that this kind of teaching. This heresy. Invites God's judgment upon the teacher who announces it. And invites God's judgment on the hearer. Who falls for it. Now, of course, in our day and age, we see two bad extremes with the word heresy. One extreme is to insist that everyone who ever disagrees with me about anything is a heretic. That's certainly not true. There are believers with whom we disagree. There are believers who teach different things about certain aspects of scripture that we don't agree with. But we wouldn't call them heretics. We would worship with them. We would serve with them. We would call them brother or sister in Christ. We wouldn't call them heretics. That's one bad extreme. But then the other bad extreme is to refuse to call anything heresy. All in the name of peace, love, and not rocking the boat. Of course, our job is to fall in that middle ground. Through prayer, through study of God's word, through discernment, to be able to call heresy heresy when we see it, but also not to level that accusation at someone with whom we simply disagree about something minor. The problem, but when the problem, when we refuse to call anything heresy in the name of not hurting people's feelings, in the name of not sounding too harsh The problem is that we allow other believers into these destructive teachings. When we're too cowardly to call heresy heresy, then we are complicit when fellow believers are led astray into destructive teaching. So again, we certainly shouldn't label everyone who thinks differently than we do a heretic. There are matters of faith that we simply agree to disagree upon. However, we also shouldn't be scared to call out deceptive, divisive, and destructive teaching when we see it. Now, stepping back a moment from the letter, at some level, you may feel a little bit of sympathy for Peter at this point in his life. He's devoted everything to following Jesus. And here, up until the very end, he's still having to call out false teaching. I mean, why couldn't he just let this go? Is this really heresy or is he just getting cranky in his old age? Why can't Peter just coast into retirement, die a peaceful death, and let the next generation of Christians sort this all out themselves? Well, Peter doesn't let this go because the stakes really are that high. When the truth of the gospel is being compromised by these teachers, Peter can't just sit back and watch. But in spite of how dangerous these teachers may be, Peter gives us reason for confidence. He gives us reason to be positive. He gives us reason for hope. And we see that starting in verse four. Making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So Peter's made it clear in verses one through three that there are false teachers out there and they're dangerous. And that's reason to be alarmed. But then Peter gives us confidence by showing three examples of past wickedness and how God handled those situations. The first phrase, fallen angels, is likely referring to that story of rebellious angels committing sexual sin in Genesis chapter 6. That second phrase, the ancient world, of course, is the world of Noah, descended into rampant wickedness. And then there's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. The wicked cities marked by just about every sin you can imagine, including homosexual practice. Now, what do all three of those stories have in common? Not the sin. Not all the exact same scenarios. But what those three stories have in common is that God brought his judgment down upon the wicked. Now, how is that encouraging? That doesn't sound very encouraging at all. But Peter's reminding his audience that sin never wins in the end. Like Noah. And like Lot, God's faithful servants, God people, you and me, will be saved. As we've talked about more times than one on Sunday mornings here, any time you come across judgment in the scriptures, it's very easy to get uncomfortable. It's very easy to start squirming. But as it's presented in scripture, one man's judgment is another man's deliverance. And our deliverance, of course, comes not through our righteousness, not through our perfection, not through our good works, but through Christ's perfection, through Christ's righteousness, through Christ's good work on the cross. So Peter makes it clear that there are false teachers out there and they are to be avoided. But then he also tells us that the wicked never win in the end. And that God's people are saved from judgment. Now, those are important reminders. And that second one should bring believers some peace of mind. However, you might still be intimidated thinking about this problem of false teaching. Because you might be wondering, well, how can I tell which teachers to avoid? Peter mentions that some of these false teachers are directly denying Christ explicitly rejecting the master who bought them. Those people are to certainly be avoided. But what about the false teachers who are a little bit more subtle? The false teachers who say most of the right things about Jesus, who say most of the right things about God's word, but are just a little bit more secretive. How do we know how to avoid them? Well, Peter gives us more guidance, starting again, starting again in verse 10. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these like irrational animals, creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, Will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. You know what you're doing is a bad idea when your donkey tells you, hey, you probably shouldn't do that. Verse 17 These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm for them. The gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for speaking loud boasts of folly. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh. Those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that he is enslaved. So how do you tell good teachers from bad teachers? How do you discern those teachers you should trust from those teachers that you shouldn't trust? Well, if you go back to verses 2 and 3, and several of the verses that we just read, there are two recurring qualities of false teachers that Peter emphasizes. One of them is sensuality, and the other one is greed. Now, I don't think it's a coincidence that Many, if not most, scandals involving Christian leaders and Christian teachers in our day and age feature one, if not both, of those sins. Sensuality or greed. But Peter adds other qualities as well. He says these false teachers are blasphemous. They're arrogant. They're obnoxious with their blatant sin. Peter says their eyes are full of adultery. Again, so much of the sin that these false teachers are guilty of revolves around sex. And then he gives that example of Balaam. Numbers chapter 22 through 31. The man who eventually cursed Israel for gain and tempted the Israelites into sexual sin. So you want to know which teachers to trust. And which teachers to avoid. Well Peter gives us some guidance. He tells us to pay attention to their words. No doubt about that. But just as importantly. Pay attention to their lives. Are the teachers you trust marked by the qualities that Peter has mentioned today. Sensuality. Greed. Blasphemy. Arrogance. Or are they marked by the qualities that Peter listed last week. In chapter one, faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection and love. Find teachers who exemplify the truth of the gospel through both their words and their lives. Find teachers who look more like the believers that Peter described last week in chapter one and less like the opponents of chapter two. Now, one thing that American Christians historically have not done well is discerning which teachers are worth following and which teachers aren't. And there's probably more than one reason for that. Sometimes we're simply ignorant. We don't know enough about scripture to hold teachers accountable to it. So we just believe whatever it is that they're saying. Other times we're overly forgiving to the point of being naive. When a sinful pattern clearly forms in the life of a teacher we trust, we should take notice. We should be aware. Other times we're too pragmatic. We assume that if a teacher has lots of fans or sells a lot of books, then they must be doing something right. Well, not necessarily. And other times we're gullible. We'll follow anyone who makes us feel good and says what we want to hear. Or sometimes we're starstruck by celebrity leaders and teachers and preachers. So much that we're willing to overlook the sinful patterns that are obvious. Now, it's a good instinct to want to forgive some teacher who's been exposed. It's a good instinct to want to give someone who's fallen into sin a second chance. We're believers. Of course, that's good instinct to have. However, if a doctor botched your surgery. Would you allow them to perform surgery on you again? Would you give them a second chance? Probably not. Of course you can forgive them. Of course you can be understanding that there is a thing like human error. You can forgive. You can move on. But that doesn't mean you're going to go back under the knife. It's also good to recognize that no Christian teacher and no Christian leader is perfect. We shouldn't place Christian teachers and leaders on some unrealistic pedestal. We all sin. We all fall short. And we shouldn't assume a teacher or a leader is a complete fraud, a false teacher, the moment they fall short of perfection. But at the same time, we absolutely must have high standards when determining which leaders and which teachers we trust. We must must be willing to examine not just the things they teach, not just the words that come out of their mouths, but also how they live. We cannot allow ourselves to be deceived into destructive heresy. Because as Peter has made clear, the stakes are simply way too high. But let's close by reading 2 Peter 2, starting in verse 20. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Now, if these words sound serious, that's because they are. Again, we wouldn't entrust our physical well-being to an incompetent doctor who knows nothing about the human body. So why would we entrust our spiritual well-being? To a teacher or a leader who exemplifies none of the teachings or practices expected of leaders in scripture. Peter says that doing that, trusting a leader like that, is like trying to get a drink from a waterless spring. It's like trying to water your garden with a mist that just blows away in the wind. It's pointless. It won't make you healthy. And it won't give you life. False teachers may promise you freedom. And freedom is a word that we love. They may promise you freedom. We'll talk about that more next week. But ultimately, these false teachers can't deliver. So Peter makes it clear. Don't fall for it. He gives us this warning to help us avoid their destruction. And God, in his grace, gives us this warning to help us avoid his judgment. We must turn to good, godly leadership. You need it. I need it. Every single church needs it. And if we turn to anything less, then there is great destruction and great harm that can be done. That's the warning that Peter gives us. And I pray that's a warning that we would heed. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you teach us. Even when it's a little bit intimidating. Even when it causes us a little bit of discomfort. Thank you that you... Give us your word for our good, the parts that we enjoy and the parts that we understand fully and easily put into practice, along with the parts that are more challenging, along with the parts that are more difficult to understand, along with the parts that might make us squirm. But, Father, I pray that every single one of us as a believer would have discernment in terms of who we trust, whose teachings we listen to, who we allow to lead us. We all need good shepherds. Every single one of us in this room. We're all prone to wander at times. We're all prone to fall into deceptions, fall into teachings that we want to hear, but actually aren't in accordance with your will and in accordance with the gospel. So, Father, I pray that When those times come, when we are tempted to stray, that you would draw us back, that you would put us back on the right path, that you would put the truth back in front of us when we're tempted to follow after lies. And Father, thank you that Christ never fell into lies, that Christ never was deceived by false teachers, that Christ never offered a single word of false teaching. Thank you that he was faithful to the mission that you gave him. Thank you that every single one of his words is perfect and trustworthy for our salvation. So, Father, help us trust in him above all as our chief leader, our chief teacher. And I pray that every single one of us who calls ourselves a leader or a teacher, especially in your church, I pray that we would model our words and model our lives after christ we love you we praise you we thank you for your mercy and your kindness and we ask this all in christ's name amen